Welcome to a special edition of NeuroTalk. I am Mark Padalina. In this episode, I will walk us through some of the favorite moments in NeuroTalk, from the very beginning of the series through season two. It's the highlight reel. The NeuroTalk podcast series started as a way for people to hear the stories, passions, and personalities of different professors, as if you were to sit down and have a chat with them over lunch. And this episode is jam-packed with favorites, from the very cool... So I used to be a hip-hop dancer. ...to the very interesting... I met my husband when I was an undergraduate at UCLA, and uh, he was a graduate student. Actually, he was my TA. Oh, scandals. <laughs> and professors talk about the impressive and inspiring. I was commuting between New Haven and Boston. It's a couple hours, and uh, my doctoral mentor uh, allowed me to crash at his house. And so I'd come up for the week and crash at his basement, and then I'd drive back home. I would do medical school for the week and then go back up and do my work on the weekend. So it was a little crazy, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then some professors share some surprising confessions. As much as I would have loved nothing more than to have made great inroads into LTP, I was just a miserable failure uh, in that field of research. So stay tuned to hear from interesting and accomplished scientists covering topics such as their inspirations to have careers in academia to adventures working with different animal models. Let's start with how some of our guests realized they were interested in science. The very last clip we played for you so far was from Dr. Jeffrey Isaacson, Associate Professor of Neuroscience at UC San Diego. Dr. Isaacson may have had trouble studying LTP as a young researcher, but has since published excellent work on inhibitory transmission. Let's listen to Dr. Isaacson talk about how he first found inspiration and self-confidence to go into science. Basically in my high school, college, and post years, I was more interested in sound and lighting uh, for bands. <laughs> so that was sort of my lifestyle for quite some time until in my mid-twenties, I saw people that were about my age now doing that sort of career. And I, I didn't think I was going to make it. It's a, it's a very hedonistic lifestyle. So I, I decided to do the fallback and go into science. And to make a long story short, at one point, I moved up to a place called East Haven, Connecticut, to live in a beach house on Long Island Sound that a friend of mine was renting. And that was all well and good, except after a few months, I was desperate for money. And I had applied for a job as a bouncer in a nightclub <laughs> and didn't get that. And I applied for a job as a liquor store clerk and didn't get that either. So in absolute despair, I walked over to the physiology department at Yale Medical School and went to the main office and asked some administrative worker there if anyone needed a lab technician. And this woman sent me down to meet this guy that, of course, I never heard of named Dick Chen. <laughs> and um, I knocked on his door. These are all things I would never imagine doing now. But I knocked on his door and said I was looking for a job as a tech. And he sort of looked at me strangely, asked for my resume. And um, he called me back and gave me the job. And it was being a technician in Dick Chen's lab at Yale that really set the stage for my future because it was a great, great experience. Met some fantastic people there and saw how exciting and fun science could be. One of the important ones was Dan Madison, who's obviously at Stanford right now as a professor. And so these were big influences that put me on track to go to graduate school at UCSF. Can you remember a particular story about your experience in the Chen lab back at Yale that kind of turned you on to science? Well, I'll be honest, and I've said this to Dan Madison, but I was always very insecure and thought that you had to be super, super 
brilliant to actually be a scientist. And actually, I met Dan, who's obviously a wonderful and bright guy. But but I looked at him and I said, you know, if he can do it, I, I can do it. <laughs> Um, and, and that was a big factor, believe it or not. He really got me to put away my insecurity and realize that I could do science too. So there are four more stories I want to share with you about how some professors decided to go into academia. The first person is Dr. Evan Eichler, professor of genome sciences at the University of Washington and the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. He is a geneticist whose work is of great interest to neuroscientists, and here he is talking about his first moments experimenting with genetics as a kid. I grew up in actually northern Canada, I guess central northern Canada. I grew up on a farm in a very small community, or outside of a small community. I think the biggest center that I that I lived next to was about, about 500 people. Um, and I got probably at the age of, well, let's say grade nine, I became interested in genetics largely from the perspective of uh, a project that I had, had begun with my mom. We were trying to essentially raise rabbits, and not just any old rabbit, but Angora rabbits. And I don't know how many of your listeners know anything about Angora rabbits, but their primary reason for raising them is essentially to plug, you know, to get wool off of them and essentially make sweaters and stuff of different colors. They're sort of like rabbit sheep. Like rabbit sheep, right? If you ever see pictures of them on the internet, they're very, they look like uh, tribbles, almost big fluff balls of, of fur kind of thing. Cute or not so cute? Uh, they're pretty nasty when you get down to it, but uh, they look cute especially when they're okay. small. Anyway, so the bottom line is that my mother wasn't one, she wasn't a big fan of, you know, dyeing the wool. She wanted to do everything kind of with natural colors. So um, we ultimately got a market for the wool and that type of thing. And she said, well, she had heard stories about how you could actually generate these different colors of rabbits um, through breeding. And I, I looked up how to do this and I picked up on uh, essentially what's called the five coat color gene system. And uh, so basically got different rabbits, brought them in, uh, started breeding them and, and magically within three or four generations with a Punnett square and some simple, basic simple genetics was able to produce pure lines of browns and blues and dilutes and lilacs and so on, Angora rabbits. And uh, she was, that was amazing. And I actually thought it was amazing too, that even though we knew nothing about the genes that we could use simple Mendelian genetics to be able to actually create these, you know, these lines of rabbits producing colors of that, you know, faithfully. Huh. And so at that point, I kind of, decided that you know genetics was extremely powerful because it was so deterministic at least in my mind at that time and that I would love to be able to do this but you know from a really a perspective where we would be able to help humans as opposed to you know just breeding rabbits kind of thing and at that point I I decided and you have to remember where I, where I lived most people didn't know what a geneticist was um, in fact, in most of the universities, people, you know, they had geneticists or they knew of geneticists, but they'd always point me further south into the States to actually go for interviews. And so when I was, I think in grade 11, when my father took me on a road trip to meet bona fide geneticists, which took me down to Madison, Wisconsin, uh, where I met some people and I convinced myself this is what I want to do for the rest of my life, although I didn't know quite how I would get there. Huh. Uh, so, Interesting story. Yeah. And here is a story about a professor who came to science later in life. She is Dr. Diana Bautista, an assistant professor of molecular and cell biology at UC Berkeley. I came to science uh, later in life, I think, than most people. I grew up in Chicago, in the inner city, and went to public school. And I have to say that they did the best they could, but science education wasn't very modern, I would say. Mm -hmm. And I always liked science, but I never thought of it as a career. And so I ended up going to study fine art 
mm-hmm. when I first went to college. And I was a really bad artist. So, which <laughs> What's is an why? example of some really bad art that you made when you were in, in college? Oh, like, you know, you think about how people make really wonderful sculptures out of discarded, recycled items. Mm-hmm. Um, I made lots of bad art out of old <laughs> recycled items, which was fine. It was really fun. But I think... I knew that it wasn't going to be a viable career choice. (laughs) Uh uh (laughs) So um, I actually took a few years off of school and figured out what I wanted to do. And it was actually working with an environmental group that I got interested in science, looking at dioxins in the Great Lakes. And so I taught myself chemistry and learned how to read epidemiological reports and got me interested in environmental science, but from the more science chemistry side. Mm -hmm. So I took three years off after a year of school. And and then I ended up going to the University of Oregon because they had a really exciting environmental science program Uh that focused more on the science rather than the ecology side, which was not so common at the time. Um, And this was in the mid 90s. And I went there and I took a neurochemistry class and I really loved neuro and, and really loved chemistry and ended up getting a degree in biochemistry. And then I applied to graduate school in chemistry and in neuroscience. And it was hard to decide and ended up going to graduate school at Stanford in the neuroscience program. Then there is Dr. Chala Arulu, an assistant professor of cell biology at Duke University. Dr. Arulu talks about her inspiration to become a scientist while growing up in Turkey. I grew up watching my mother working in her in her lab and you know going through so I remember that she was at the last stages of her PhD. I think that was around the time I was 6 or 7 years old and I remember you know, spending a lot of the weekends in the lab with her and looking at her cool lab equipment and so on. And she's a chemical engineer. And she always, you know, took me to the university where she did her research, which uh, she's still there. And she's a professor there at Turkey in Middle East Technical University. So for me, research, science, doing experiments was you know, something that everybody did and was the coolest thing that one can possibly do. So I remember very well when I was a little kid at primary school, I thought everybody wanted to be a scientist because that was the thing to be. And when I started, you know, blurting that, oh, I will be a scientist when I grow up, I remember this, one of these boys in my class said, why are you so weird? (laughs) I was like, what weird? What are you talking about? This is like the coolest thing on earth, but those kind of comments didn't deter me from wanting to be a scientist. I always had an interest in biology. I loved living things. I loved nature as a child. So I wanted to really understand it. I also had another interest, uh, which was stars and everything to do with astronomy and astrophysics. So I had these two love, love for biology or love for physics and uh, a huge pressure from my mom and my dad, who are both engineers to become an engineer at the same time. So my undergraduate is actually on chemical engineering. But after I graduated, I said, okay, 
I like engineering, I like physics and chemistry, but biology is such a new and fast moving field. I really want to go into biology. And at that point, I switched to molecular biology and did a, a nice two year master's again in Turkey in a different university and then had the opportunity to go to European molecular biology laboratories in Heidelberg for my graduate work. These stories highlight just a small sample of the colorful backgrounds we hear from our different guests, and many more interesting stories to come as Season 3 continues. Dr. Don Cleveland, a professor of cellular and molecular medicine at UC San Diego, shares a lesson he learned in grad school from an accomplished faculty member. When I was a graduate student, there was a young faculty member who was widely thought to be the best and the brightest. His name was Bruce Alberts. He became widely known, the famous textbook, president of the National Academy of Sciences. And Alberts asked questions at every seminar. And the questions seemed so simple. And there were a trio of students, uh, myself, Elaine Fuchs, now uh, Hughes professor at uh, Rockefeller, and Art Levinson, the former CEO of Genentech. And the three of us could not figure out how the best and the brightest, Bruce Alberts, always seemed to, seemed to know so little. So one of the lessons I learned, I learned it slowly, was that the reason you ask those simple questions is because if you'd actually answered that, you would have really solved a problem. So I think the answer was to think more clearly, as early as possible, on what would really be an important question in biology. This next clip involves Dr. Richard Chen, who is the founder and first chairman of the Stanford Molecular and Cellular Physiology Department. We hear an interesting detail about Dr. Chen from an alum of the MCP department, Dr. Mala Murthy, who is now an assistant professor of molecular biology and neuroscience at Princeton University. Dr. Murthy tells us about her favorite moments from an MCP retreat. I have to say it was Dick Chen doing a rap about the MCP department. I think it involved him wearing a dollar sign around his neck, as I recall. And here is a great story from a discussion with Dr. Thomas Schwarz, a professor of neurology and neurobiology at the Harvard Medical School. Dr. Schwarz was once a faculty member of the Stanford Department of Molecular and Cellular Physiology. He tells us a story involving Dr. Brian Kabilka years before he received the Nobel Prize. There was a faculty meeting once where we were discussing whether or not we should start teaching the cardiac physiology course and taking over control of it. And it was being taught by a lot of, of clinical cardiologists. And we didn't want to have to teach it. I mean, I didn't want to have to teach it. It looked like work, right? <laughs> so uh, Dick Chen, I guess it was several of the, of the, I'm not sure it was even cardiology that was the issue. I, I don't want to do them a disservice. It was one of the other courses. And Dick said, well, you know, it's part of our responsibility. And I said, not really. They teach it. And he said, no, it's physiology department. If it's not taught well, it's a blot on our escutcheon. And I said, you know, I don't think so. I argued for a while that it wasn't a blot on our escutcheon. <laughs> and uh, the conversation went on a while like that. So later in the afternoon, Brian Kabilka comes by my office to talk to me about various things. And he says, oh, you know, by the way, you know, it's so one thing I wanted to ask you in his very, you know, quiet, yeah. polite way. There's one thing I wanted to ask you, which is, you know, you and, and Dick were using a, a word that I didn't know the meaning of in the, in the faculty <laughs> meeting. I said, really? I, I don't think so. He said, yeah, you know, I thought I might know, but I said, well, what was it? He said, well, you kept talking about a, a lot on the department's escutcheon. 
And I said, oh, oh, yeah, that's a term from heraldry. It means like the family crest. And uh, he said, and, you know, if you have a blot on it, it means like maybe you were an illegitimate child or had done something bad or something like that. He said, oh, oh, that makes more sense. I said, why? He said, well, it's a medical term, too. I said, really? He said, yeah, yeah, it it refers to the area covered by pubic hair. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, how could you keep a straight face in the faculty meeting thinking we were talking about pubic hair? Uh, I, I love Brian, and that was a very endearing moment. Uh, <laughs> these insider stories brought to you by Neurotalk. And highlighted in this next section are some unforgettable moments with animals. First up, we're going back to Dr. Schwarz, who previously used lobsters as a model organism for his research. So we had to ask him this. So when you pick a lobster to eat, you don't necessarily want to pick the biggest one because it's uh, far harder to cook large lobsters evenly. But I wonder, what are the things people should look for when picking a lobster to study? So cheap is good, and you know, although I have to say lobsters uh, are much less expensive than rats and mice. And I long for the days when I could just send a you know, a taxi down to the pier to pick up a bunch of lobsters for five to ten dollars compared to the mouse bills that I get now. So uh, it was a great thing. We studied these little legs on the side that nobody wants to eat. You could cut off one leg to do your physiology experiment and throw the lobster back in the tank. Don't do that with your mice or rats. And, and then come back the next day for the next legs. And once all four of the legs were gone, it's yours to eat if you want. Better, better food than most graduate students eat, I think. Here is a fun rapid-fire question we asked Dr. Michael Platt, a professor of neurobiology and director of the Duke Institute for Brain Sciences Center for Cognitive Neuroscience. Have you ever tried the fruit juice you reward the monkeys with? Well, of course. Uh, we reward them with a variety of different kinds of fruit juice. Uh, juicy juice typically tends to be the brand that they like. Um, but each monkey has its own fruit juice that it likes. So you'll find a monkey who won't work for cherry, uh, won't work for white grape, but will work for apple. And here is a story from Dr. Cynthia Moss, a professor of psychology and systems neuroscience at the University of Maryland at College Park. Dr. Moss uses bats as her animal model and runs into fieldwork that's quite unique. Sometimes the bats are, we know they're in the house, but they are hiding between walls. And so sometimes we'll go in during the day and try to get them if we can find them, or other times we may have to set up nets and collect them as they fly out. Huh. So I guess one funny story is we were at a house during the day and we could hear the bats moving around between the walls, but we couldn't actually um, see them. And we managed to get a man who uh, was smoking a cigar <laughs> to place a cigar <laughs> uh, at the opening of the wall where the, um, the smoke entered into the area where the bats were, and then they chose to fly out. So then we were able to get them. <laughs> that stinky cigar uh, chased them away, or chased them to us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we also find that Having bats with experience in the wild is important for our research. And so for that reason, um, we continue to collect bats, even if there are opportunities um, to get lab-bred bats. 
and Dr. Mark Freeman, an assistant professor of neurobiology at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, speaks about his love for flies. You know, I, I always tell people we do some mouse work now, but we'll always be primarily a fly lab because the, the precision with which you can answer a question is really unrivaled. And I think for the questions that we're interested in, I, I think the flying nervous system is sufficiently complex where it has glial subtypes that are like astrocytes and glia that, and sheath axons like Schwann cells. Whereas a worm might be a little too simple to have as, you know, as sophisticated a, a subset of glia. So, you know, the, the complexity of the nervous system is just right and the genetic tools are fabulous. But even having said all that, I'm happy to swat flies and shoo away fruit flies from my fruit. <laughs> um, and I'm always disgusted by the notion I can bring a piece of fruit home and a few days later, the animals pop out of it. And I know it's because maggots have been crawling around. <laughs> yeah. And here is Dr. Caitlin O'Connell-Rodwell, an assistant professor in the Department of Otolaryngology here at Stanford. She talks about her research experience with elephants. So when you were in graduate school, you showed that elephants actually use foot stomping as well as these low-frequency vocalizations called rumblings to generate seismic waveforms, by which you mean they, they actually are shaking the ground and using the shaking of the ground to communicate, maybe particularly for long distances. Can you recall the moment that this idea occurred to you or, or your colleagues that elephants might actually be talking and listening to one another uh, through the ground rather than the air? Well, yes, actually, there was an aha moment because having studied plant hoppers who, who are like uh, cicadas, but they deliver their very loud signal through their feet into the ground instead of through the air like a cicada does, they do a lot of posturing, what I call listening with their feet. And uh, when they're listening for females and trying to mate, well, in the field with elephants, I saw very similar things happening. They would freeze. They would position themselves in certain directions very purposefully because you'd see a whole family group, you know, 10, 20 individuals doing the same thing, lining up along an axis, and then freezing, lifting one foot off the ground sometimes, sometimes pressing their trunk into the ground. It was very purposeful behavior in these whole groups. And, you know, elephants are very subtle animals, so... This was striking to me over a course of maybe a year, the first year that I started studying them, but it kept happening. And then there were several times where they would be doing this and then suddenly another herd would arrive. And I would think, wow, this is exactly what the plant hoppers were doing. It's the same exact behavior. I thought there has to be something going on. They're you know, very heavy animals and uh, very low frequency, high sound pressure level signal and I thought maybe they're sending the signal through the ground, whether it's a purposeful or a byproduct of an airborne signal with such high sound pressure. It's like a, a mini explosion. It hits the ground, and you think of the ground as an elastic medium, and it creates this ripple across the surface. Well, it turns out that ripple is exactly has the same structure as the acoustic signal, but traveling through the ground. Hmm. So, so what did your fellow elephant researchers think when you uh, first proposed this? I mean, I... If I were a skeptic, I might think, well, I've seen a cat stop and, you know, listen. Just because they stop, that doesn't mean they're <laughs> listening to the ground, right? So Yes. Um, well, for some people, it was a huge relief. Like, oh, my gosh, that explains everything. And for some others, uh, it was more like, well, elephants can stop and kind of be curious and uncertain. So how can you be sure of that? And 
surely somebody else would have figured this out long ago, um, that kind of thing. But, you know, over time and um, the data that I collected, and also I think that uh, when you're in a culture of a certain scientific environment and somebody pokes a hole in that membrane, you get very uncomfortable and uncertain about it. But uh, <laughs> some of uh, a few of those people actually wrote to me several years later and said, you know what? I'm finally seeing what you're talking about. And they were in a different environment, a different geological environment, and they thought maybe it had to do with that. But they were so thrilled to contact me and say, you know, I didn't see this in Amboseli, but I'm here in Mozambique and I see this behavior. And, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. Hmm. When, when you're in a certain scientific culture, you don't think about things outside that culture. And so it's sometimes difficult to propose things that aren't, ingrained in that culture. The last clip comes from a fun rapid-fire question we asked Dr. Diana Bautista, an assistant professor of molecular and cellular biology at the University of California, Berkeley. So we talked a little bit about the specialized nature of the star organ of the star-nosed mole. So if you could design your own custom sensory organ, what kind of specializations would you give it and why? Oh, fun question. Of course, I'm interested in touch and pain, and so I would say that I would design an organism that has a different organ for each type of sense of touch, which we think there are at least over 20. So <laughs> specialized for each different types of touch sensation that I think we don't really talk about. I think touch is taken for granted. And right, yeah. because of that, I know a lot about it. <laughs> and more of these to come in season three. Our future guest is Dr. Elena Gracheva, an assistant professor of molecular and cellular physiology at Yale University School of Medicine. Dr. Gracheva will talk about using bats, snakes, and squirrels for different animal models. And there's a lot more to look forward to in season three. Here we have Dr. Yishi Jin, professor of neurobiology and a Howard Hughes medical investigator at UC San Diego. She talks about being interested in science as a child during China's cultural revolution. So uh, your HHMI investigator profile states that you grew up in China during the Cultural Revolution, which saw the complete shutdown of scientific research and study. Uh, and you began studying biology at Peking University four years after the end of the revolution. Uh, could you talk about uh, what that was like and, and how that uh, affected your thinking about your scientific career? Long question. It's a complicated history. And if a simple catch was, I um, say, at the time when the Cultural Revolution ends, it, they're the country, all the young people really just wanted to study. It's a rare opportunity that finally opened to all of us. That's, um, so we're all very excited. There's funding, good teacher who can get us actually good textbook. You know, this one thing during the Cultural Revolution, there wasn't any textbook. Hmm. There wasn't any problem sets. We were just basically looking for anything, sometimes broken pages of questions, so we could work on them. Hmm. And then it's a very exciting time. It's the most, I says, the learning time I felt that, that treasured most in my life. Really? Yeah. Huh. It's, uh, you know, it just says that there were no books, I mean, apart from the political propaganda books around. There's no real literal books for you to basically read it freely. Mm-hmm. So, it's, so every bit of knowledge that you picked up had a sort of special... Yeah, just suddenly it opened. So therefore we could read. And then the matter of fact is that we need to find all those um, books around. And that's been, you know, one of the things during the Cultural Revolution is that some of those really good textbooks got burned. Mm -hmm. There were no copies left. 
And so a lot of time I learned in high school, like even um, algebra and the questions given to me is actually handwritten by my high school teacher. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like almost rather than uh, dissuading you from pursuing a career in science, it maybe was part of what spurred you. You know, I, I jumped into it, right? Because yeah. uh, the cultural revolution was the one reason they say pushed me into science because it just told me the politics was so ugly. Mm -hmm. And um, whereas the science is so pure and it's so much truth in there. And what pushed me into biology is actually I had a, a biology high school teacher. So biology wasn't a mandatory um, course for, bio for high schools or elementary school. But happened that my school had this um, biology teacher, and she actually came from, uh, I think she was, came from Singapore returning, mm -hmm. as um, returning Chinese. So she had this opportunity to start teaching biology. And I just thought, um, both her accent, you know, her Chinese wasn't super um, local, and plus the way that she's very animated just made the trees like talking to me. <laughs> and so that was the reason I said biology is the most fascinating. And but at the time there were also push about, you know, if you're very talented or good at the grades, you're supposed to study physics or math. Right. And I sort of got completely um, fascinated into this live aspect of science. Mm -hmm without actually knowing much of it, what the cells or anything, but just that passion from my teacher. Do you remember any particular things that you were super interested in back then? Yeah, I mean, a lot of cases, basically she was talking about photosynthesis mm -hmm. process, right? And then she was telling you how the green leaves and then all the whites, the chloroplast, and how to purify the chloroplast, but suddenly you see those kind of things. You say, ah, oh, this is all made sense because before I just see them as a tree. Right, right. And, um, you know, she explained that that was all completely new to me. Yeah. That's got me into biology. Next up is what our former host, Dr. Forrest Coleman, exclaims as the greatest moment in all of NeuroTalk. It is an interview during season two with Dr. Lauren Luger, group leader at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute at Janelia Farms. Dr. Luger talks to us about his job interview at Janelia. Yeah, they ended up at Janelia was another random decision. I'd never heard of Janelia or really Howard Hughes Medical Institute, and I certainly knew nothing about neuroscience. You know, I knew less about neuroscience coming into Janelia than I knew about plants going into Carnegie, which they bore biochemistry going into Duke, which, you know, in all three cases was, you know, I was shockingly underinformed about those disciplines. But it was my wife's idea. You know, she saw some poster of, you know, the early Janelia propaganda of come be a part of something different, some sort of inspirational hoorah poster. And I bought it. I didn't know anything about neuroscience, but I was like, damn it, we're going to do this thing. So it's the only place I applied to for a job. And I don't know what the backup was. I don't think there really was a backup plan. Wow. And so, you know, I show up at Janelia, and I've read, like, the first chapter of Handel, like, kind of skimmed it. I only had a couple of weeks to really put this application together, and I gave probably the worst interview talk in the history of the world. And even now, you know, I, I haven't gone back to my slides. It's been eight years since I gave that talk, and I still have not reached a point 
in my life where I could go back and face that again. Because what I pitched is I pitched that it seemed to me from reading chapter one of Candel that, that the details were, you know, still need to work out the details, but we knew the big operating principles of the brain. So it seemed to me that the only, you know, for the propaganda of Genelia is try hard things. Come do things that will fail that, you know, you couldn't even attempt at other places. And so I was like, okay, well, it seems like we got the parts list. You got the neurons and they form synapses and then, you know, these little electrical currents run down and then they release some neurotransmitters. I was like, okay, we got that. Let's redesign it. So I pitched the computational and directed design of novel neuro certain neural circuits where you would you would design in synapses by creating new pairs of binding partners across of synaptogenesis markers. I pitched the creation of a new neurotransmitter that we would take glutamate and turn it into like a bumped glutamate, you know, like a methylated glutamate. And then we install the biosynthetic enzymes for these in certain classes of cell. Then we'd have to design transporters, receptors. But we had just the details. We would just take care of all this and then install that. And so about halfway through my talk, I'm, I'm pitching to people, you know, so what behaviors do you want to design? I don't know much about behavior, so I'm going to need your help in deciding which behaviors to design. And then, you know, I also don't know much about neural circuits, so how do I, you know, where, where, where do I need to design the new synapses and install the new neurotransmitters? And, I don't know the answer to that, Lauren. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, and about this point, I looked up, and, uh, and, you know, I'd just been kind of in the zone, just like giving my talk. And uh, I looked up, and Eric Kandel looks like he's just seen a ghost. <laughs> and, you know, Sidney Brenner looks like he's going to vomit. And, uh, you know, Rod McKinnon just is kind of like checking his phone. Um, <laughs> Winfrey Dink just, just kind of looking at me like I'm some sort of, like, butterfly in an insect collection, and he, he just he just doesn't quite know what to make of me. And Charles Zucker looks like he's having the most fun he's ever had <laughs> in his life. He's just sitting there grinning like a madman. And at that point, I was like, you know, I think I've really just fucked this whole thing up. Wait, you said that, you said that out loud? Pretty much. No, no, what I said out loud is I said... I think I'm going to pass out <laughs> because it, it all happened so fast. You know, like I was in, you know, I was at Stanford and I was living in San Francisco and I was a West Coast guy and, you know, it was the wife's idea to go interview at Janelia. And so when my friends asked, I was like, yeah, no, I'm probably not even going to go if they, if they make me an offer. I was like, I don't know anything about neuroscience and, and D.C. seems kind of stupid, and, you know, I love the West Coast, and so, you know, I was just really brushing it off. I was like, yeah, no, I'm probably not even going to go. And it's only in the middle of my talk when it suddenly becomes crystal clear that this was all a horrible mistake, and that I also realized that this is something that I really, really want. And... <laughs> 
it's just such a sinking feeling to, you know, to realize something like that in front of 40 people and while you're delivering a talk and realize that you've just thrown it all away. Okay, but, <laughs> so I was like, but this story has a happy ending. So, so what saved yeah, the day yeah. here? Exactly. Somehow I managed to deliver the rest of my talk. I think I was just like muttering and maybe crying a little bit, like delivering my talk. And I remember the last sentence of my talk was, well, but if you don't want me to do that, I'll do something else too. <laughs> and, so, and then there's the polite, like stunned applause where, you know, people are just like, oh my God, what just happened? Um, and, and the question and answer period was, you know, I think Eric Kendall, I think just raised his hand and just ranted instead of like actually asking a question. And someone like, someone says, so, um, what makes you think you'll be able to do this? And, uh, there, there were some more polite questions. And then I sat down and, uh, I remember calling home and I was like, Oh guys, no, we need to find we need to find another plan. <laughs> and so for two weeks I basically just forgot about it. I was like, you know, hey, I threw that thing out and there's no backup plan. So I was you know, I was probably looking at like industry jobs or I can't even really imagine what I was doing for those two weeks. And then, you know, my phone rings and it's Jerry Rubin and he says, Okay, that was the worst talk I've ever heard. We love you. He's like, can you come, but you got to do different stuff. You know, <laughs> I was like, I, I think all I said was, yes, sir, that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was an amazing moment. And lastly, here is a montage of sorts when we asked different scientists. If you could go back in time and speak to yourself as a graduate student, not a graduate student in general, but yourself specifically, what advice would you give yourself? I would say... Don't worry about your career and don't stress out about how long it takes to get through graduate school or how long you're in your postdoc. I think if you just follow the interesting science and it will, and the rest will take care of itself. Go with your gut, work hard. Uh, and um, yeah, if you, if, like I said, if, I think if you have a passion and a drive for the work that you're doing and it keeps you awake at night, and I know that's cliche, but it really is the difference. And just being smart isn't enough. You got to work at it. You got to work hard. And if you have those combination of things, you can even be mediocre in terms of not as bright as the next guy down the block, but you will do well in science. <laughs> um, I think the important thing is uh, not be despaired if the results don't turn out the way you want them to be. <laughs> and also you have to have an open mind. That's what I, one thing I've learned through my career is that you have to have an open mind because sometimes we're so narrowly into are getting expected results from what you think should happen. But mo most often of the times, you don't get the result that you expect. You get results that are different from your expectation. And what do you do then? So you have to have some open mind in terms of trying to interpret a data that doesn't fit with the conventional paradigm and trying to figure out an experiment to quickly figure out if that's really true or it's an artifact of some experimental detail that you missed. So that's kind of important thing I would like to advise. And also because, you know, I struggled so much trying to get the chemical LTD protocol working during my graduate work. 
at some point I was very down because I spent years trying to get this protocol working and couldn't get it to work and I wasn't convinced that it was actually real. And at that point, you know, I really uh, thought that was my uh, lowest point in my life because, you know, you really <laughs> want data uh, when you're a graduate student. And over the years, I sort of realized, you know, that wasn't bad because you really need to struggle through to learn stuff because that's when I really learned how you have to troubleshoot for experiments when it don't work. And also, that sort of uh, builds character in a way, so you can endure other hardships that come through your way. Believe me, there'll be much more difficult things uh -huh. than experiments not working. <laughs> so I think a graduate school life is the time when you should be going through your hardship, because later on, mistakes <laughs> are much more difficult to mend. That's what I realized. Just looking back, what I've struggled during graduate school actually was a big benefit for me in terms of trying to get my career going. Because, you know, anything that I bump into, I say, hey, I've gone through that in graduate school. So I can do this, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go explore past episodes of NeuroTalk from seasons one and two, and follow us for further episodes in season three. In addition to the episodes we produce with the weekly neuroscience seminar series, we began investigating different sides of the scientific enterprise, from science policy and advocacy to scholarly publishing. We look forward to you joining us next time. Thank you for listening. NeuroTalk was founded by Erica Senor, Forrest Coleman, and myself, Mark Padalina. Our thanks to our guests for coming onto the show and having great discussions with us. And special thank yous go to everyone at Neurite West, especially Nick Weiler, who founded it, and Astra Bryant for taking charge of the NeuroBlog. To Mary Cavanaugh for the opportunity we had at the Cal Academy of Sciences, and Antoine de Moray for giving us exposure in his Science Magazine article. And to George Ansack for exposure in the Berkeley Science Review. Thank you all so much. Listen to our other podcast series, Brains and Bourbon. You can hear past episodes and more at our website, www.neuritewest.org. That's N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. This is NeuroTalk. I'm Mark Petalina.